Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. You may have seen a recent article in InsideHigherEd.com that began, Wyoming Catholic College has a lot of unusual things about it, each enough to merit a story in itself. Wyoming Catholic is a conservative Catholic college that educates students in the great books and Catholic tradition. It also teaches horsemanship and bans cell phones on campus. I love that. And it turned down federal funding. President Glenn Arbery describes the mission this way. This college is engaged in deep ways with the agony of a culture that has lost its spiritual center. We're adventurous and poetic and deeply Catholic. He likes to cite Dostoevsky in crime and punishment. Low ceilings are bad for the soul. The ceilings rise at Wyoming Catholic, which is located in the foothills of the Wind River Mountains. The curriculum centers in the Western tradition. Its Catholic identity builds upon Thomas Aquinas and the magisterium of the Catholic Church and engaging with God in the wilderness. Find out more at wyomingcatholic.edu. All right. We have with us today C. Bradley Thompson. He's professor of political philosophy at Clemson University and the executive director of the Clemson Institute for the Study of Capitalism. He's been a visiting scholar at Princeton, Harvard, and the University of London. His previous books include the award-winning John Adams and the Spirit of Liberty and Neoconservatism, an obituary for an idea. Uh, today's topic is a new book of his that's just come out entitled America's Revolutionary Mind, a moral history of the American Revolution and the declaration that defined it. Thank you for joining us, Brad. Hey, Mark. It's great to be with you and your audience. Good, good. I was visiting down at Clemson uh, last year, about a year and a half ago, and I observed a program, a new program that you've started at Clemson a few years ago, and I thought you might want to just tell our audience, especially those who have kids who might be heading, heading toward college in a year or two, thought you might want to talk about the program. What is the Lyceum program? Sure. It is a scholarship program. We give 10 scholarships per year to incoming freshmen, renewable over four years. And in exchange for the scholarship, the students are required uh, to be a part of our academic program. We use a great books approach to studying the history of liberty, capitalism, the American founding, and the principles of moral character. And the students take eight classes together as a cohort over their four years, one class each semester, so the classes include a freshman year course called Wisdom of the Ancients, a course in ancient Greek and Roman moral thought. Sophomore year, a course on the political thought of the American founding. Um, they also do a course on the political theory of capitalism. And the capstone course, which is Wisdom of the Moderns, a course in modern moral thought from Shakespeare through Jane Austen to Dostoevsky um, right up into the 20th century. Um, and then maybe the most interesting thing about this program is what we call the um, Socratic uh, tutor program. And that is we assign to each one of our students a what we call a Socratic tutor who meets with his or her two T's every other week for about an hour, the purpose of which is twofold. First, to um, help our students translate theory into practice. So, for instance, if they're reading Aristotle's Nicomachean Ethics, the question is, how does your typical 18-year-old 21st century American translate Aristotle into their world here now today? And then the second more important purpose is to get our young people to start thinking more seriously and deeply about questions of moral character, and in particular, their moral, char their moral character. 
and because we believe that there's an intimate relationship between moral character and a free society. You cannot have a free society made up of moral reprobates. So in the end, what we're really trying to do is to re-envision um, education for the 21st century, and we're, we're trying to restore uh, a great book's humanities approach, um, but one that is also practical to uh, life in 21st century America. Now, I see humanities enrollments around the country, they are plummeting. English departments, philosophy departments, they see the numbers go going down steadily every year. French departments, German, I mean, the European languages, those, those, those places are, are just microscopic at this point in sort of in terms of student enrollments. And your program makes the kids work a lot harder. They've got to meet, I, I saw this when I visited campus and wrote about this at City Journal. Your kids have to meet with their Socratic tutor. They've got to read works like Aristotle's Politics. So I imagine you started this program five or six years ago. You said, you can't find any students to apply to this program. Is that correct? <laughs> Not quite. So uh, when we first launched the program almost now six years ago, um, I was expecting 30 to 50 applications for a program that nobody in America knew anything about except me and my staff of two other uh, people. And that first year we had 192 applications, and I'm uh, delighted to be able to report that today. Uh, for next year's incoming freshman class, we had 650 applications from high school students in 48 states. For how many spots? For 10. Wow. And you also said because of this extraordinary demand, you've really opened it up, the, opened the courses, the program up to non-scholarship students, correct? That is exactly right. So because of popular demand at Clemson, um, we've started a second track that we call the Lyceum Fellows Program. And unfortunately, we don't have a scholarship for those students, uh, but the good news is that the program is much more flexible. Rather than having to take the eight classes that the scholars take, they take just six, and they can do them in whatever order they want, whenever they want. So it's maximum flexibility. And our numbers um, have gone from zero as of two years ago up to now around 120 uh, Lyceum Fellows. So there is absolutely no question in my mind that, um, that, this, that this program is in high demand by, by young people and their parents all over the United States. And I mean, I think if we, you know, if we had the resources to offer 20 or 50 scholarships per year and double, triple, quadruple the size of the program, we could do it uh, very, very easily. And what's, I think in many ways, Mark, what's really extraordinary about this program is that when humanities departments are collapsing around the country for the reasons I think you've suggested, and when students are going into practical disciplines, professional disciplines like business, for instance, um, and and yet we have these kinds of numbers. What it tells us, I believe, is that there is still, and this is the good news, a yearning, burning desire among high school students and their parents to have this kind uh, of an education. And so, 
you know, build it and they will come, and we have built it and they are coming. Um, and uh, and particularly now in the light of, of the the state of higher education in light of coronavirus, uh, I, I believe that our program has just huge potential to grow, including, interestingly enough, now also the potentiality of online education for great books programs, which is anathema to those of us who have spent our lives reading old books and and talking about them with young people face-to-face, um, I, I do think actually uh, online education has the possibility of opening up this kind of education to thousands and tens of thousands of, of people. How do people, uh, what, what is your website for the Lyceum program? So the, I think the best thing to do is, uh, the, the URL is a little too complicated, so just Google Clemson Institute for the Study of Capitalism, and you can just navigate, once you're there, you can navigate to Lyceum, or you can just Google Lyceum Scholars Program Clemson. Great. All right, the book, America's Revolutionary Mind, A Moral History of the American Revolution from the Declaration, uh, American Revolution and the Declaration that defined it. Quickly, the subtitle, Brad, what's a moral history as opposed to other kinds of histories? Sure. Well, as I'm sure, sure you and your audience know, there are all kinds of histories of the American Revolution, which is probably the most written about subject in American history other than the Civil War. There are social, political, economic, constitutional, diplomatic, religious, even environmental histories of the American Revolution. But there has never been a moral history of the American Revolution ever written. And uh, in many ways, I think this is really the key to understanding what this book is about and how it's different from all other books on the American Revolution. So what I do is I employ a new, what I call a new methodology, uh, what I call the new moral history. And the new moral history, unlike most other histories, uh, certainly uh, of the kinds that have developed in the 20th century, it's concerned with the nature of causation and agency in the course of human events. So I begin with certain assumptions that, for instance, individuals are the primary unit of moral value and that uh, human nature is noble and predictable, that reason can know cause and effect relationships, that men have free will to make choices, uh, and that human action can have uh, intended and unintended consequences. So that, that methodology that I bring to the study of the American Revolution um, is, is, it's a new methodology. Most historians uh, of the American Revolution, they have tended to look uh, at the revolution from the 64,000 foot level. That is, they just look at large masses of people undifferentiated from one another uh, and, and, and who they disconnect ideas from actions. And so what my history does is it tries to reconnect thinking and acting individuals with the events that they create. So that's that's the background. Now, uh, in terms of the moral history, what's I think it's important for your audience to understand how it is that I came up with this concept of a of a moral history, particularly of the American Revolution. And so I was originally just going to be writing a book on the Declaration of Independence, um, and then I read. Uh, a passage in a letter from Thomas Jeff uh, from uh, John Adams to Thomas Jefferson in 1815, 
And Adams raised the question, what do we mean by the revolution? And his his answer to his own question was, well, it's not the war. The war has nothing to do with the revolution. The revolution, he said, took place in the minds and hearts of the American people in the 15 years before a shot was fired at Lexington and Concord. That would be from 1760 to 1775. And he said that revolution was a moral revolution. And then likewise, Tom Paine, um, in the early 1780s, in a letter to the Abbe Mably, said about the American Revolution that, quote, we see with new eyes, hear with new ears, and think new thoughts. And so I took those, those two quotations, and it led me to start rethinking about the causes of the revolution, uh, going above and beyond the standard political, constitutional, economic histories. And what I came to realize is that Adams was absolutely right, that sometime during that 15-year period, the Americans um, really began to rethink their moral presuppositions. And you can see that most, most importantly in their understanding of the idea of rights, which I believe is morally and politically the heart and soul of what the American Revolution was all about. So in 1765, when the Stamp Act was passed, most Americans accepted the traditional English doctrine of the rights of Englishmen, right? And the rights of Englishmen are derived from history. They are rights of a particular people from a particular place at a particular time, and they are rights that evolve over the course of centuries. But the American revolutionaries came to understand that that understanding of rights uh, was deficient and could not resolve their conflict with British imperial officials. So the Americans began to look for something that was much more um, absolute, certain, permanent, universal. And that's when they really sort of adopted um, the idea of what we call natural rights, rights that are grounded in nature, which means that, in fact, they are uh, permanent and universal. And that then was the flag on which uh, American patriots uh, rallied to the cause, and that was the argument, uh, that was, the, I'd say, the most fundamental argument that they used in their conflict with British imperial officials. And that sense of natural rights is more than just an idea. It's not just an abs a concept, an abstraction. And I want to quote a couple of more passages that you quote in, in the book. Because in, in those opening sections, you, yeah, you identify the John Adams talking about the revolution really was in the minds of the people. You did the quote from Tom Paine. There, there's a further part of the quote where Paine says that we are in, uh, we, Paine says, a new era for politics is struck. A new method of thinking has arisen. You mentioned Joel Barlow, who echoes the point and connects the revolution to a different, quote, habit of thinking. And finally, Jefferson, you quote, as characterizing the Declaration of Independence itself as, quote, an expression of the American mind. And this, this suggests that the idea of natural rights almost became a, a, a kind of mental or moral instinct. It, it, it got that deeply into the heads of, of the colonists. Is that what you're going with? 
Yeah. So th- this is uh, philosophically a complicated subject because the idea of natural rights, of course, had been around uh, for about a century. Uh, the idea of natural rights uh, was first um, exported from uh, from England, particularly through the writings of John Locke, to Britain's American colonies uh, beginning in about the 1720s. But if you believe that ideas have consequences, as I do, it does, of course, take years, decades, and sometimes even centuries for ideas to trickle or percolate down and through a culture. And that's exactly what happened in colonial America beginning in the 1720s. These ideas uh, of Locke's, particularly the moral political ideas of Locke coming from the Second Treatise, they percolated down through the culture. And and over time, and you have to remember, of course, that virtually, uh, or I should say most uh, colonists viewed themselves as British, if not English, and viewed themselves as loyal subjects uh, of of the king, um, and so the, so they, they were the American colonists were they were very British. In, in fact, one could even argue that they were monarchists; they were loyal subjects of the British king. Um, but between I'd say 1720 and about 1760. The Locke's idea of natural rights percolated down through the culture, and and it, re, but it was it was one could say almost subconscious, and it was brought it was brought to the fore with the the Stamp Act crisis, and and at in 1765, not all Americans, not all American patriots, who were arguing against the Stamp Act used the arguments of natural rights. A few did, like James Otis, for instance, and John Adams, but not all did. Uh, But then from 1765 until 1776, more and more American arguments were, were using the doctrine of the rights of nature as the principal foundation against which to argue uh, against which to argue against the the, um, the the various acts that were being passed by the British Parliament, the for, you know from the the stamp through the declaratory Townsend Tea and coercive acts. Now, one thing you bring out again and again, Brad, is that while these ideas have their historical development from Locke forward, the founders insist again and again on the immutability and universality of the rights and the laws that they they hold to is that that's a crucial part of these these principles correct absolutely and of course it's um, important to note as as uh uh, as a sidelight, really, that we in the 21st century, really from the 20th century now until 2020, we have largely rejected that idea. In certain ways, Mark, what I would say is the single most important phrase of the Declaration of Independence is the, is the, the beginning of the famous second sentence of the Declaration. We hold these truths to be self-evident. 
And the key word is truth, right? In 21st century America, I would say the single biggest difference between our worldview and the worldview of American revolutionaries is that American revolutionaries believed in the concept truth, truth that is absolute, certain, permanent, universal. Whereas, of course, as you know, um, it said that we live in a post-truth society, which was, a, which was the Oxford Dictionary's word of the year in 2016. And Time magazine a few years ago published on its cover uh, um, the following. Is truth dead? Question mark. Right? That was taken as a serious question. And uh, in, in the light of uh, postmodern uh, philosophy, um, it, it is true that we live in a post-truth society. Right. And so when you go back to something like self-evident, well, here, here's a bigger question, Brad, and, and the, what you go deeply into the intellectual and moral history of the Declaration piece by piece for several chapters going into issues such as why does Jefferson say laws of nature and of nature's God? I'll, I'll, I'll ask you that question. Why do we have both in, in there? Uh, the, the loss of the idea of universal truth. What does it mean for a country when its dominant intelligentsia and all the cultural and educational institutions of it uh, subscribe to a dogma contrary to the foundational documents of the country in which they inhabit? Well, I think the result is uh, predictable, um, which is slowly over time, the internal rotting and eventual implosion of the moral, uh, the moral, um, the moral virtues and moral principles uh, of a nation and a nation. Well, let's put it, to, let me put it to you this way. Um, a nation that hates itself cannot stand to paraphrase Abraham Lincoln. And in many, in many ways, the, certainly the intelligentsia of this country um, has completely down the line rejected the principles of the Declaration of Independence uh, and holds them in, in the highest contempt and, and is, has been for well over 100 years been trying to replace those ideas uh, with, with a different kind of moral political philosophy. And I think the result is self-evident to use a term, uh, for all to see, which is the internal implosion of the moral culture of this country. All right. Why does nature say laws of nature, or why does Jefferson say laws of nature and of nature's God? Well, that's to know why he used that particular phrase uh, is, is hard to know. The best that that I can do is to tell you what he meant by those terms. So, so um, I think it's important to know that certainly leading American revolutionaries uh, like Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, James Wilson, they were, 
they were all, to one degree or another, they were Enlightenment thinkers. And as such, what, what they did uh, in moral and political terms was to take the ideas uh, that they had inherited intellectually from the 17th century English Enlightenment, particularly the ideas contained in Bacon's Novum Organum, in uh, Newton's Principia Mathematica, and in Locke's Essay Concerning Human Understanding. And you know what those what those books did, what those 17th century Enlightenment thinkers did, was they attempted to use reason to discover um, what we can call the scientific laws of nature. And of course, the, the great treatise to that end was Newton's Principia Mathematica. And in the 18th century, uh, moral and political philosophers then attempted to to apply the idea of scientific laws of nature to human life. And they tried to discover uh, moral laws and rights of nature. Um, And that's, I think, exactly what uh, several American revolutionaries were attempting to do. So in the context of the Declaration, the Declaration, of course, talks about the laws of nature and of nature's God. And so, what, but what Jefferson means there is he's, ta- he's not talking about Newton's scientific laws of nature. He's talking about the moral laws of nature. It's the moral laws of nature which will serve, one, as the standard by which to judge the actions of the British Parliament and George III, and those laws of nature will also be used... Um, as the as the foundation, the moral foundation, when the Americans create new constitutions and governments. So, what what are these what are these laws uh, of uh, nature? Um, well, they, they the laws of nature are one might say the laws of man's moral nature. They are laws which which command man to act and behave in certain ways. So they are, they are in a sense, moral commandments, uh, telling man uh, uh, how, how he must live his life if he is, in fact, to live and to, and to live well. Now, the question that you've asked, though, is what is the relationship between the laws of nature and of nature's God? So, you know, I, I, do, I do think it is true to say, and this point is disputed fairly enough, um, that Jefferson, uh, probably more than almost all other American revolutionaries, was was uh, a student of the Enlightenment. And so when jo- Jefferson talks about the laws of nature, he's referring, as I said, to the moral laws of nature, which can be understood without the existence of God, or without God as its source, but on the other hand, he then says, and of nature's God. But notice that it's not the God of Abraham. It's nature's God, right? And so I think Jefferson believed that, uh, yes, uh, that there was a God, but it was not uh, an omniscient, all... Um, it was it was not uh, the God of Abraham. Uh, it was not the God uh, of Augustine or of the Puritans. It was a God in the traditional or in the standard Enlightenment way, 18th century Enlightenment way, a God who was compared to a clockmaker or a watchmaker who created the universe 
and then and created a universe that was governed by absolute certain permanent universal scientific laws and then stepped back and had the thing run on its own. So I think Jefferson's Jefferson's God is a uniquely enlightenment God. But of course it's important to say that Jefferson's God is not the same God as most 18th century colonial Americans and probably not the same God um, that was that was worshipped by even the, the members of the Continental Congress who signed the Declaration of Independence. Right. Now, very good. You, you regard Locke, you, you call him a radical thinker, specifically in that he, this is you now, quote, rejected a near 2,000-year-old classical Christian philosophical synthesis that identified human nature and natural right with inequality, dependence, and duty. Now, we don't usually see Locke as, as a popular, popularly as a revolutionary. Is that because his, his revolutionary turn on this issue was so complete? Yeah, I think so, Mark. I do believe that Locke uh, really was, and still is in certain ways, the most revolutionary thinker um, in the Western canon uh, of moral and political philosophers. I do think he revolutionized the way we think about human nature, um, about human action and human relationships. And what I think, I think maybe the most single most important and revolutionary concept developed by Locke is the idea of self ownership. Um, and you see this um, in, you see Locke uh, lay this out in chapters two and five of the Second Treatise of Government, and where he describes man's condition as being one of equality, but also one of freedom. And and then I think maybe the single most important or crucial concept in Locke's moral and political philosophy is the one that he discusses in chapter five, which is a chapter on property uh, in in the second treatise, and it's the idea of self ownership. Locke really, I believe, is the philosopher who one can say, in a sense. In, in it discovers the idea of the individual the 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 individual as the primary unit of moral and political value and if man is self-owning then he is by definition self-governing and if he if he is self-governing then that changes the entire moral political universe um, and and it changes the particularly it changes the nature of man's relationship with his community and more particularly with government. Last question, Brad. Uh, there's so much more in the book that I recommend to our listeners, and it's it's dealing with complicated historical and philosophical intellectual developments, but very engaging, very well written. But let me ask you this, what is an unalienable right? Great question. Well, an unalienable right is one that cannot be taken away. And um, that is to say that it is 
it is a an unalienable right is a right that is in effect a requirement of human nature that is to say rights recognize for instance that it is necessary and right that man should be free to choose and pursue actions that are required to support and fulfill his life it it, it recognizes that it is necessary and right to freely for man to freely exercise his rational f- uh, faculty. It's necessary and right to act in order for him to acquire, uh, keep, use, and dispose of his property. It's necessary and right to benefit or suffer uh, from one's one's own actions. So it's 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 a right that is in a sense inherent in the human condition if man is to live uh, and to live well. And unalienable means that it ought not to be, to be violated by other individuals, and most importantly, it ought not to be violated uh, by government. And here's how you can think about what rights are. What you, uh, I, I'm, I'm speaking here... Um, um, analogically, and that is rights are on the one hand like a license. They are a license to act, to act in the service of one's life. But they are also, on the flip side, they are offense. They are offense that protects our freedom of action uh, and our, our right to govern, govern ourselves without um, uh, being controlled and dictated to by other people. The book is America's Revolutionary Mind, A Moral History of the American Revolution and the Declaration that Defined It. It's with Encounter Books. It actually is the first of two books, Brad. You've got one you're preparing now on the Constitution next? Yeah, that's right. so the, the follow-up book is to be titled America's Constitutional Mind on the Origin and History of the Idea of a Written Constitution as Fundamental Law. You will have to come back when that book comes out and, and give, us, uh, uh, give us that one, too. Okay, Brad, thank you for joining us, Dr. Thompson. I'd love to do it. Thank you. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.